welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. This morning we're joined by a neurosurgeon, I was going to say pediatric neurosurgeon, but actually you're a neurosurgeon with an interest in pediatrics, uh, Jason Lewiskachny. Uh, Jason did his undergraduate at WITS and then specialized in Bloemfontein, which is a small little dorp <laughs> More <laughs> in dorp. the free state. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, then he's obviously been working as a neurosurgeon for quite a few years and recently he's joined the team at the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital to try and improve the service of neurosurgery for pediatrics in Southern Africa as a whole, I think. Uh, so welcome, Jason. We Thanks. Thanks very much, and it's good to be here. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about pediatric head injuries. So as pediatric surgeons, we see an awful lot of pediatric head injuries, and the truth is that you know eighty five percent of them are kind of inconsequential. Really, sometimes we'll do neuro ob, sometimes we'll just send them home. You know, it's a very frequent condition that we see. Um, but I was reading some interesting statistics and. Yeah, up to 50% of uh, kids that die from blunt injury are actually secondary to the severe brain injury that they sustain. Um, in fact, the other interesting statistic that I read the other day was that in South Africa, we've got 2% of the global car population, but we've got 20% of the global traumatic deaths related to motor vehicles. And these obviously include pedestrian vehicle collisions as well. Um, so another big category of patients that we see in sort of developing countries is that related to non-accidental injury. So it's actually quite a big topic uh, within our environment. Um, so I just wanted to kick off and ask you what your thoughts are on preventative strategies in pediatric head injury. There's been quite a big move towards this, but what are your thoughts on that? Um, okay, well, yeah, first of all, to just agree with your, your introductory statement, I mean, 100%, the, the burden of disease is, is huge. I mean, we have, um, I think we have double the statistics compared to a global um, uh, a developed country in terms of motor vehicle accident and, and motor vehicle accident death rates from, from, from head, head injuries. Um, and it's, it's a, is in a, to a certain extent, really a preventable disease. Um, you know, we'll we'll get to it later on. I'm sure where we talk about primary head injury and secondary head injury, and it's the only thing we can do to treat primary head injury. You know, we mm-hmm. we we as surgeons um, focus on the, on the sec- secondary um, injury component only. So, of course, prevention is better than cure, and and it and it needs to be looked at. Um, I think there's three there's three moves at, at, at present or three or three programs and, and one is just your awareness kind of programs which is huge in the developed world um, you know particularly with your sports injuries mm-hmm. um, I was also looking at some stats and they're saying in the states between 2001 and 2012 there's been a hundred percent increase in sports related head injuries in oh. children under the age of 19 years old wow so there's a huge move to wearing helmets, wearing helmets properly. Um, coaches being aware of um, being being aware of of post concussion guidelines. So I think there's that awareness ca- campaign, which is big in the developed world. It is catching on. We have this thing called Boxmart, which uh, came out a few years ago, okay. um, with return to play guidelines and awareness of concussion and and, and that. 
But I don't think we necessarily have the awareness programs beyond the sports field, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so your uh, pedestrian pedestrian vehicle accidents is is, is probably one of our biggest um, uh, culprits in, in this, particularly in the pediatric uh, population. And I think that's where the second element comes in and maybe fits in line with our, our, our primary health care responsibility in the primary health care setting of education, you know, yeah. uh, preventing falls, road traffic safety awareness. Um, and then the third element of, of awareness or prevention programs is, are your, really are your global things. Um, your interministerial kind of, kind of programs. Um, the the UN has its you know sustainable goals by twenty twenty, and in that there's even a, a section on preventing violent injuries, preventing you know road accident uh, uh, injuries, and um, and I think that is um, also plays you know making the roads safe, making our cities safe, and looking at interpersonal violence, which is something that we shouldn't neglect in in, in our. Um, in, in in our part of the world, that probably interpersonal violence is one also one of the leading causes of um, of of traumatic head injuries in 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 our pediatric group, um, but that is at a much higher level. I mean, that's changing society itself. But of course, I think it's it's that's where we need to to start, and probably where we can make the the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's often that sort of a cult area that we neglect but as you say is probably one of the biggest areas for us to be aware of at least um so i mean obviously there's direct head injury and there's all these sort of uh concepts in you know managing head injuries but maybe you can just explain to us what the monroe kelly principle is and, and how does it come into the area of pediatric head injuries um okay well if we've just talk about Monroe Kelly. Um, effectively, Monroe Kelly is that this, the brain and brain contents uh, sits in uh, sits in a rigid container. Okay. And so your volume is fixed, and therefore any change in volume, and by that I mean any growing subdural or any brain swelling or whatever, necessarily results in increasing pressure. Um, we've typically broken it down into three components. So we look at the parenchyma, okay. um, and then we look at the vascular component um, and the CSF component. Mm. And the parenchymal component, which is 1,000 to, to 1,300 grams, which accounts for about 1,200 mils of volume, um, is, um, is your fixed. You, you know, you can't, the brain has some compressibility, but effect, effectively that's your fixed component. And then your vascular bed and your CSF bed accounts for about 150 mils each, and those are your variable components. Okay. Um, it's a little bit different in children. So, um, you know, there is some, there, some, in those kids with open fontanelles and, and softer skulls, there, there is a, there's a, a small caveat to say that, that it's not, a, a, strictly speaking, a, a rigid container. But for all intents and purposes, it still applies to the, uh, to, to the pediatric problem, uh, to the pediatric population. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, so I was know, actually going to ask you whether, because there's always been this, I'm going to say misnomer, but about the fact that, you know, infant heads, essentially you can't get raised intracranial pressure because the fontanelles and the fissures are not fused yet. I mean, does that stand true or is that really just a misnomer? I think in certain, in, in certain respects it's, it's true. Um, 
if I look at our tolerability of what, um, and particularly in your shaken baby kind of syndrome, um, the, with effusions and that kind of thing, we we would often tolerate something more than we would in an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but by no means is it a, a law, and, and that you can sleep easy at night and say, no, the the, the, the my pressure's aren't going to go up. No, I, I think that's false. But we would, um, if you look at the actual percentage of cases that go to theater in a child with a with a, a mass lesion as opposed to an adult with a mass lesion it will be lower in, okay. in, in, in children um, but no it's not a get out of jail card no. all right okay so there's a bit of a leeway but it's by no means no. you know a fail safe to correct let us get away okay no. cool so there's also this um, debate of hypoxia versus hypotension in early head injuries and that's you know some people will push for oxygen some people push for uh, cerebral perfusion um so you know just thinking about that i mean in terms of oxygen perfusion etc what what's the cerebral perfusion pressure and how does that play a role i mean obviously you mentioned the monroe kelly principle and that accounts for the volumes within the brain or within the i mean within the cranium um but the cerebral perfusion pressure, how does that fall into the picture when it comes to head injuries? Um, okay, so I think what, you tr- what, what, what you're getting at is uh, intracranial pressure targeted therapy versus cerebral perfusion pressure targeted th- therapy. The, the, um, the, the, the first, the, the original school of thought was if you, if you, if you controlled your intracranial pressure, um, you know, provided, provided your ICP was less than 20 or less than 15 you were you were fine um no one was really looking at cerebral perfusion pressure so effectively just as a definition uh cerebral perfusion pressure is your mean arterial pressure minus your intracranial pressure um on a technical point just uh just be aware of where you zero your transducers so we <laughs> we, we we try to cause especially when you're elevating the head of the bed seven uh, you know by 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 30 30 degrees, you can land up having a seven centimeter of water difference between your foramen of Monroe, where mm. we're measuring ICP and your and your heart. Right. So, um, so, but effectively, CPP is is your your uh, map minus your ICP. Um, so the original we were originally targeting ICP as as the gold standard, and then we started looking at um, what happens to and assuming that our cerebral perfusion. Uh, pressure was 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 adequate uh, until we realized really that autoregulation is often fails in in head injuries okay. now autoregulation really um, occurs at the level of the arterioles and um, it, it's actually staggering the amount of volume you can win by manipulating that arteriola bed they are capable of dilating two to three hundred percent from their resting size, okay. and um, which, if you look at a volume perspective, that's a four hundred to nine hundred percent change in blood volume. You said mm-hmm. it's one hundred and fifty mils of fluid that you can effectively uh, manipulate. So we, we can alter our intracranial pressure by manipulating cerebral autoregulation and making sure that we're working with, uh, in, in, within our level of cerebral autoregulation. So the original cutoff in you and me and in, in, in a non-traumatized brain, um, the lower inflection point for autoregulation is a CPP of 50. Okay. Um, 
And, um, but we almost certainly that's reset in, in the traumatized brain to a much higher level. Right, right. And um, some early studies that came out that said, well, can we tolerate what we call permissive intracranial hypertension? Can we tolerate that in the face of a, uh, of a, a, a sustained cerebral perfusion pressure? Um, so if we're having your patients with your your ICP of 30, provided you're giving them a cerebral perfusion pressure of maybe 70, or you know, are you are you, are you going to negate that that raised intracranial pressure? Right. And um, there's no, there was some early evidence that the patients had better outcomes, um, but beyond 70, um, a cerebral perfusion of pressure, you start running, you started running into problems with vasopressors and needing to really increase that your MAP because that's the mm-hmm. only way you're really going to get that perfusion pressure up. And uh, then you start running into problems like ALDS and, and that kind of thing. So so it's still a balance, yeah. and there's a big uh, move towards what we now call optimal cerebral perfusion pressure and using that as a target rather than ICP or CPP per se as a just as a threshold. You know, we have thresholds, and in kids it has to be above 40, but it, up until two years of age it should be with preferably above 45, because um, f- up to 40 would be normal, 45 in a, non- in a traumatized brain. Um, and then as the kids get older, 50, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a variant according to age. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk a bit about optimized cerebral perfusion pressure, um, because it's a, bit, it's a little bit in vogue if, if you want later, but... Uh, but I think I'm answering your question in terms of volume and CPP. Um, yeah, so I, I, mean, I was so. originally I was I was thinking actually in the sort of acute setting, almost before the neurosurgeon gets involved. Okay. And I, you have answered in the fact that you're saying that almost perfusing the brain is the most important aspect of it. So you know, making sure patients are. Uh, their blood pressure, should we say, or their maps are sufficient to perfuse their brains. That's the most important thing initially. Okay, y- yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we will, uh, I- I'm sure we're going to discuss hypoxia versus uh, hypertension at some stage. And-, and absolutely, we know that hypertension is far more devastating uh, than-, than hypoxia is. Mm. Um, the I think some of the studies are your your mortality doubles if you've had one episode of a now in adult population systolic blood pressure less than ninety you know so so certainly um, hypertension is to be avoided at all costs. The change in mortality is less striking if the secondary insult is restricted to hypoxia. Okay. Um, but the problem comes in is that the results are not additive; they are actually. Um, What's the correct word? Um, the multiple multiply. So I think you have a four percent increase in mortality with one episode of hypoxia, a fifty percent increase in in mortality with one episode of hypertension, but an eighty five percent mortality if you have both. Okay. So so the results are cumulative, um, mm. and uh, so yes, absolutely, we have to avoid hypertension at all costs. Mm. Um, there was an article I was reading not so long ago um, looking at a, a helicopter service where they had anaesthetist on board. They looked at, I think it was 50-odd cases of um, well-resuscitated patients, um, full ATLS team on board, all ATLS principles um, um, applied to, and yet still about 60% of their patients were arriving in a pre-hospital setting um, with at least one incident of secondary brain injury, and the most common was hypertension. 
So, so yes, it's difficult to avoid, but I think if you're aware of a potential head injury, your recess thresholds and endpoints need to be adjusted for that. Yeah, I think it, it becomes almost a catch-22 because in some of the trauma situations, there's new trend for permissive relative hypotension yeah. um, to try and stop uh, ongoing bleeding. Mm. But obviously, as you, as you say, if you're suspecting a head injury, actually you need to keep your perfusion going so that your brain can uh, perfuse. And that's as important, if not more important, than getting oxygen to your brain because, as you said, your brain mm. will just suck out the oxygen it needs from what it, you know, the surrounding. So, yeah, it's, it is a bit of a catch-in too, but it's quite an interesting... Um, you know, paradigm that people need to be aware of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the moment you suspect a head injury, um, I mean, I'm cognizant of the of the that 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 permissive hypertension kind of thing, but but uh, for, in 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 general trauma. But I think the moment you suspect a head injury, um, you know, I, I think you certainly have to be more vigilant in in, in avoiding uh, in hypertension, mm. and I, I don't think that that permissive hypertension should. Uh, apply anymore in those situations mm-hmm. yeah yeah so maybe you can just guide us through the different types of head injury you see on a regular basis i mean people talk about uh diffuse or focal um you know it's obviously penetrating blunt etc etc um what are the common categories of head injuries that you see in children so um um, obviously, the, our morphological definition of, of diffuse versus versus focal, um, and then uh, you you could look at penetrating versus versus non non penetrating, um, and then p- p- potentially accidental versus versus non accidental. Um, in terms of diffuse versus focal, your fu- your diffuse uh, almost lie on a, 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 a spectrum from concussion to diffuse axonal injury. You okay. know the mildest of of, of I- injuries. Um, and your diffuse injuries are typically your non-impact related. You know, it's your either your con- your concussive, your acceleration, deceleration, your rotational injuries, mm-hmm. um, and then um, and then your shaken baby baby syndrome kind of thing, your non-accidental trauma. Okay. And then, obviously, your focal is the the ones that's easy to spot on the CT scan. So it's your contusions, your parenchymal hemorrhages, subdurals, extradurals. Right. Um, as I said, and th- those tend to be more impact related. Um, you know, so um, um, an unrestrained passenger, or a um, a direct blow to the head, or uh, being struck by an object, or fall, and and they often tend to be lower uh, in, uh, lower velocity injuries. Um, certainly, a a, um, a focal injury or um, is in our is for us is easier to treat. You know, okay. you can evacuate the hematoma, and typically your pressures are, are raised. Now, that's not always the case when secondary brain injury sets in, mm-hmm. but uh, from a surgical point of perspective, it, it it's it's almost easier to 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 treat. All right. So, I mean, you've mentioned a few times primary and secondary head injury or brain injury what is the difference between the two so so really primary injuries is, is is the injury that occurs at the time of the event you know it is that diffuse axonal injury it's the shearing and tearing of your of your axons um it's that hematoma that's that's 
compressing your, your brain parenchyma. So that's what we define as primary head injury or your, your primary insult. Mm. And there's nothing we can do about that. There's, um, other than we alluded to earlier, prevention. Right, but right. effectively, there's no management of, of, of primary head injury. So we really uh, step in to prevent secondary head injury. Okay. So, and that is the stuff we've, we've spoken about, uh, avoid hypertension, avoid hypoxia, avoid hypothermia, avoid seizures, um, avoid, um, you know, agitation and, and that. And then, um, and then optimizing um, brain perfusion effectively. That's really what we're looking for. All these, all these, all these things that we've been discussing, intracranial pressure, cerebral perfusion pressure, um, it's really about um, optimizing brain perfusion and that we were using it all as surrogate markers for um, cerebral blood flow. Okay. And um, brain tissue oxygenation, mm-hmm. um, but that's really what secondary um, injury is. It's it's the consequence of um, of failing to do that, and then you get secondary ischemia, secondary um, brain swelling, um, herniation. With once again, and it kind of becomes a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's really what our job is about: is about treating that secondary uh, component. Okay. I mean, you've mentioned a couple of uh, concepts in trying to prevent secondary injury. And one of the ones you mentioned earlier was putting the head up 30 degrees, yes. for example. I mean, you know, while we're waiting for patients to be scanned, etc., and really worked up, what are some of the basic principles in terms of managing a suspected head injury? I mean, obviously, you mentioned keeping your mean mm. arterial pressures mm. up, mm. putting the bed up 30 degrees, um, are there any other sort of co- just just basic concepts that we need to be aware of in the in the resus area, for example? Well, I think largely your HLS principles still apply, um, and I th- and I think just being probably just being aware and being cognizant of the fact that there may well be a head injury, um, you know, elevating the head of the bed depends on whose protocol you follow. Um, because when you're elevating the head of the bed, remember you're also lowering your Intracranial, uh, your your cerebral perfusion right. because you you know the the head is now above the heart. Right, right, right. So so and you really only know the effect of of that when, once you have a pressure monitor in. Okay. Now, by all means, raising the head of the bed can reduce your intracranial pressure by up to seven centimeters of of, of water. Mm-hmm. So if you can safely do that, if you've excluded a, a cervical spine injury and you can elevate the head of the bed, yes. But when you are elevating the head of the bed. You absolutely have to make sure that that patient is well resuscitated. Okay. Otherwise, they're going to they're going to lose on the the perfusion. And okay. and with with a brain that's damaged, we know the autoregulation is damaged. They need more than a they need a perfusion pressure of more than fifty. So so that's one thing. Obviously, avoiding uh, keeping their head in a in a neutral position, um, just to aid venous return. Um, you know, keeping your uh, preventing like tracheal tape around the the neck, compressive things uh, around the uh, around the neck, and then I think probably getting that patient into to scan as as soon as possible is probably um, um, it's a thing I always sit and bite my teeth and I'm waiting like please can we just scan the patient can I, so I can treat him or go home you know but 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 really you you really want to know you want to know the moment that patient has a head injury you want to know because. I forget the statistics, but uh, you know, really beyond four hours, once that hematoma has been in longer than four hours, your 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 
outcomes fall dramatically. Okay. So, so, and I maybe maybe it's 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 just from uh, uh, talking as a neurosurgeon, but really <laughs> the CT scan of the head is the most important thing you can do. <laughs> you know? so I'm, I'm quite so, happy. I'm quite happy you brought up CT scans. I mean. I mean, they're very controversial in pediatrics. I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, high radiation dose, etc. And I mean, I mean, it's, I'm going to say it's a no-brainer. It's probably yeah. a bad joke, but, <laughs> but it's a no-brainer in the patient that's intubated or it's got some neurological signs, a dilated pupil on the one side, or you know, some localizing signs. I mean, then there's no question. Obviously, that patient needs a CT brain and probably whatever else if you're worried yeah. about other injuries, but. You know, in the young developing brain, there's this contentious about about radiation exposure. And, you know, I mean, forget the obvious one that needs the scan, but which which when do you draw the line about a kid that this one should go for a scan and this one we can just keep an eye on or just let it go home with observations and understanding? Uh, to be truthful, that's a very difficult question. Um, the There is a... there's. N- Undoubtedly, a high incidence of of problems related to CT scans, and um, uh, if you look at the statistics, it's staggering. Um, with one one CT brain scan is is a year's exposure of you know to ambient kind of radiation, mm-hmm. and it's um, I think if you in a less than a year old in an infant, you in- increase their lifetime risk of cancer to one in fifteen hundred. It, it's sure. it's 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 significant. So I think it's it, you. Before I think we're very nonchalant about just scan the kids so we can send them home. Yeah. So so, but I think we do need to be more aware of 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 that. Um, there are there have been a f- quite a few prospective studies, and um, if you look at there's the the Chalice study and the Pecan and. Um, uh, the CATCH study, and um, they've come out with guidelines. Okay. And they, they looked at different things. Um, obviously, these were all kids that had not, who didn't meet the obvious criteria of, you know, a severely depressed level of consciousness, and that these were these these borderline kind of cases, mm-hmm. should we, shouldn't we? Um, and they all looked at slightly different, uh, slightly different variables, but certainly skull fractures, um, boggy swellings, you know, large um, hematomas, soft tissue hematomas. Mm-hmm. A child that hasn't improved within two hours, okay. you know, that are that's still symptomatic um, after two hours. Um, any sign of a of a base of skull fracture, um, and certainly vomiting and irritability, and it's something that I've always maybe not taken seriously enough. You know, kids vomit at the drop of a hat, you yeah, know, and, yeah. and that. But, but certainly um, vomiting and irritability beyond two hours is are important, are, are important prognostic factors. And if you, if you follow, now the only one that has been uh, subsequently tested and, 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 and then put into place and then, and then validated is the PECON uh, um, uh, guidelines, and they by using those um, by by using those guidelines, I don't think they missed any um, head injuries, right. um, and they but they did pick up a four to five uh, perc- incidence, four to five percent incidence of uh, clinically significant traumatic brain injuries. Okay, so so I think in in some respects, 
I potentially abuse the CT scanner still. But really, I think in an emergency department, those guidelines, if those guidelines are there, you're safe. And right. if you stick to them, you'll be you'll be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just encourage if someone's sitting in an emergency room to put those guidelines up. They're easy and they're stratified for the PECON one is stratified for kids under the age of two and above the age of two. Um, and if you follow that, you'll be safe. You'll be safe. So I just encourage to anyone is you know who who needs that information just to to have that available because it's yeah it's easy it's to refer to, to at yeah. the time of at stress yes. instead of trying yes. to remember yes. all the details. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, when we're quite lucky here, we've got a three Tesla MRI. You, should we be moving to fast MRIs for suspected head injuries? Well, I think in in um, this kind of setting, um, you're certainly not in your severe traumatic brain injuries. Um, the fast scan is a very nice nice scan, um, and there's there's various. I think there's the um, I forget all the acronyms, but there's the FOSS scan, and according to the different uh, uh, providers, there's there's mm. there's that. But effectively, it's a it's a, a three dimensional um, you know rapid T two sequence, um, and it can be you can get a, a sing a single um, orientation within less than a, a minute or in, okay. a, in a couple of seconds, in fact. So so. Yes, I think in your severely injured patient, the resolution is not good enough. Um, you're looking at um, you're still looking at an environment that is not perfect for resuscitation. Yeah. Um, and um, you know you still don't know are there metal foreign bodies uh, around, and the fast scans are not that great at differentiating blood and CSF. Okay. So I would say in your severely uh, uh, head injured patient, no. Um, I think in in this category that we're just talking about those yes no maybes I think it's good you you are going to miss some um, you are going to miss some injuries it's it's going to be in the low percentages I mean we're talking about missing you know if you follow those guidelines picking up four point four percent so so it's going to be in the low centiles but the things that you are going to miss and what worries me a little bit about the fast scan is your when you're really trying to differentiate um CSF from blood mm-hmm. and um particularly then in your non-accidental injuries where you're trying to age blood and you're trying to pick up subdural effusions trying to pick up is it a subarachnoid effusion that you maybe see in your repetitive shaken baby kind of syndrome as opposed to a subdural a subdural bleed um, I think it has its limitations, right. um, but but certainly um, it, it's it's there's, there's no radiation. Um, but I would I would restrict it really to maybe those adolescent with a concussion that you want to or a young child with a concussion that you want to avoid a, a CT scan in. I think that's ideal for that, mm-hmm. uh, but not for your severely injured patient, and um, and maybe not in your very young patient. Okay. You know, um, we. But but certainly it's it's a, it's a good modality, yeah. All right, um, I have a couple of relatively I'm going to call them rapid fire okay. questions for you. So um, there's this controversy around uh, sugar containing fluids for early resuscitation. What's your feeling, and what's the principle behind that? Um, sure. I'm not aware of the controversy from a not from a non-head injury uh, perspective. So certainly, our fluid of choice is normally normal saline as as a resus fluid, and we're aware of the limitations of it and the, and the uh, 
potential down the line uh, side effects of it. But our uh, our um, but why why do you want reason, to avoid dextrose? Well, we know that that high glucose is potentially neurotoxic. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, so so it's poten- it's potentially neurotoxic, and we really want to go for a solution that is. Um, hypertonic if anything um, and I think I imagine most of your, your glucose containing um, recess fluids are going to be what isotonic or, mm. or potentially hypertonic so we would just certainly avoid anything that was that was that was hypertonic All right, so, um, so but glucose that, itself um, yeah. per se I um, I mean, a traumatic brain injury is a highly metabolic demand demand situation. So we would normally give that once in an ICU setting, we'd normally replace 110 to 130 percent of glucose demand. You know, okay. we, we would replace. So, so obviously, glucose control is important. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I don't. I, I'm more worried about um, preventing a hypotonic. Uh, situation really than 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 what what fluid I'm, I'm I'm giving them. Okay, so speaking of hypertonic things, uh, hypertonic saline versus mannitol in in a clinical raised intracranial pressure situations. So so both are good, um, both are good. C- certainly, um, I personally have far more experience with mannitol. Um, you know, it's what we were grew up with and what we were what, what we were taught to use, mm-hmm. and there certainly has been a uh, a reawakening of the use of of hypertonic saline. If you look at the 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 guidelines in adults, there's the use of of, of mannitol. There's only type three type three guidelines, mm-hmm. um, and the use of hypertonic saline. Likewise, I think there's level level three guidelines. In pediatric uh, population, there's type uh, level two guidelines or level two recommendations to the use of hypertonic saline, um, but in the in the recommendations themselves, they say, look, realistically, we are never going to get the trials of mannitol that are that are really going to show us that it, that it's of benefit, and they, they they make the caveat of saying, you know, mannitol is probably um, just as effective, okay. um, and um, and I I use mannitol. Um, and when I fail on mannitol, I tend to use hypertonic saline. It's that's certainly not a that that that's certainly not a golden rule. I would I would be happy with anyone who used hypertonic saline as their primary recess and as their maintenance fluid and as their bailout fluid for <laughs> for raise intracranial pressure. Um, you know, I think a bit of a high sodium is good for the brain. So so you know, and and there, there's certainly no evidence of of. There's maybe some evidence of slight superiority of actual hypertonic saline, but I use it as a bailout mm-hmm. um, rather than as my primary as my primary fluid um, and my primary hyposmolar agent. Let's right, put it that right. way. Is there any role for prophylactic antibiotics in head injuries? So, um, depends what you mean by that. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so the typical scenarios where, where, where we confronted with that is patients with CSF leaks. Right. So, um, and once again, the guidelines are really thumb suck, you know. Um, so in an anterior cranial fossa uh, CSF leak, I tend to, I don't know if the data really supports that, but I tend to use um, uh, antibiotic prophylaxis for that. Middle fossa, no. Um, the the external ventricular drainage or ICP monitors in place, 
certainly no evidence to support routine use of prophylactic antibiotics, is some evidence that bacterial, uh, antibacterial impregnated catheters lower the incidence of, of secondary infection. Okay. Um, the other, the other times we're confronted with the question of, of prophylactic antibiotics is um, potentially depressed skull fractures. Um, right. I mean, if it's a closed fracture, no. I think if it's an open fracture, you're going to take it to theatre. The last recommendations I, I, I read was purely that of surgical prophylaxis. So, okay. um, you know, with your induction, give your, your standard surgical prophylaxis, clean the bride and close the wound. Um, I think the caveat being if it's a clearly soiled wound, Mm -hmm. then you can institute potentially uh, uh, antibiotics, but then it's almost antibiotic treatment rather than prophylaxis. Um, But that's really in in, in neurosurgery where we're confronted with the question of prophylactic antibiotics. I I hope I've answered your question. Yes, yes. So, and there's also this uh, interesting concept of pneumococcal vaccines in head injuries. To be honest, <laughs> um, it's obviously not <laughs> not where I work. No, no, we so, I mean, we were always taught for yeah. you know, as you said, CSF leaks or um, you know, open fractures, those yeah. things that. In many ways, it's better to give a pneumococcal vaccine than to give prophylactic antibiotics yeah. because the antibiotics don't really seem to have much yes. effect unless, yes. as you say, there's a contaminated yes. wound and those things. But down the line, they are more oh. prone to getting pneumococcal-related infections, yeah. and that's why the vaccine might be beneficial. But, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it is debatable yeah. and uh, contentious, should we say. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll, go, I'll go look it up. <laughs> you, you mentioned a few times about um, intracranial pressure monitoring, um, and this is, I'm going to say it's a relatively new concept, and it's, we've had a lot of reluctance from some of the neurosurgeons we've worked with. But then we've also had a lot of um, enthusiasm from the relatively younger neurosurgeons for placing of intracranial pressure monitors. When would you guys put an ICP monitor in? Okay, so it's one of the the, the things that I find, it's an enigma to me. Uh, It really is an enigma to me. Um, I remember when I was was, um, doing my residency, an article came out, or I actually never read the article, but our prof always <laughs> used to quote it that they did a study of, of trauma centers across, um, I think it was in the US, it was certainly in a developed nation, and um, only 50% of, of units were putting in intracranial pressure monitors. Okay. And, um, okay, that goes back 20 odd years, but I, 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 I cannot understand it. I, I, I simply, simply cannot under, understand it. Um, Having said that, there is one, uh, the only class one evidence we have is that um, daily clinical monitoring and regular imaging is as good as intracranial pressure monitoring in terms of outcomes. And that's the only class level one evidence we have virtually Mm. in neurotrauma. Okay. Um, having said that, I just I just don't understand it. I, I just physically don't understand it. Now, I think maybe for a long time we've been looking at the wrong things. We've been looking, um, and there's an excellent, excellent uh, um, concept that is completely intuitive but never really been looked at until a year or two ago, and that was um, the dose of intracranial pressure. Okay. So it was the actual measured intracranial pressure multiplied by the time 
Okay. And, you know, looking at that and analyzing that as a, as a dose rather than as a single incident. And, you, you know, we, we talk about raised intracranial pressure is more than 20 millimeters of mercury for more than 20 minutes, but no one's ever really looked at the dose. And mm. we've used... There was a study that showed less than 15 millimeters of mercury. Patients tend to do better than those where it's less than 20, yet we can't prove that those that do are kept less than 20 do better than those with no pressure monitoring. Okay. And I think it's because we haven't had that concept of, I think we were looking at the wrong thing. Right, right. Um, and I think certainly this dose, this way of looking at it as a dose is, is, a, is, a, is a game changer. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing is, look, Looking at looking at this, what I alluded to earlier, this optimizing cerebral perfusion pressure, or looking mm. because cerebral perfusion pressure, it, it's not a fixed value that we can use. Right. It's not the systolic blood pressure of 120. It's a variable between patients and even with in within the patient, the patient <laughs> within the pa- within patient over time, it, there's there's a variable. And I think when those studies start coming out, I mm. think we will see that we will start making a difference by putting monitors in. Right. Um, so absolutely, the the guidelines recommend even albeit that the, the there's no evidence, the Brain Trauma uh, Foundation guidelines uh, still recommend a pressure monitor in any salvageable patient with a GCS of between three and eight um, with an abnormal CT scan. Okay. Um, with the with a GCS of between three and eight with a normal CT scan. Um, it's patients over the age of 40, so it's not our, our group, obviously. Mm. Um, but I think our group should be included in that because we know the, the, the very young kids also do badly. Right. Um, and then peop- uh, any patient with motor posturing. Okay. So the guidelines, without a lack of ev- with the lack of evidence, still support the, the, the insertion of a pressure monitor. I think the evidence is just waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. And certainly in my practice, um, my mind boggles when I hear people don't put in intracranial pressure monitors um, because really I find it very difficult to treat a patient with with uh, with either intracranial pressure monitor. And sometimes you're surprised. Sometimes you put a monitor in and the the pressures are low. And and then sometimes you put a pressure monitor in and and you see, well, the pressure's 40 and you can almost instantly give... the family a, 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 a prognosis or you right. can you know and I just I don't know I can't manage a patient without an intracranial pressure monitor mm-hmm. so I potentially I use it a bit liberally but I would if you stick to the guidelines you're going to be safe and I think personally I think it's just a matter of time before we show that there's no doubt that, that any patient any salvageable patient should have a monitor put in okay what's the role for Anti-seizure prophylaxis in head injuries. Um, once again, um, w- with the lack of uh, real good evidence, um, it's it's really surgeons um, specific. Mm. Um, in my younger years, I used to use a lot. Um, I used to almost routinely give it. Uh, and now I tend not to. We know that certainly it makes no difference in the long run. There was this, there was old idea of kindling and that kind of thing in the brain. And if you prevented early seizures, you would prevent long term, mm-hmm. long term seizures and, and outcomes. That probably doesn't exist. Okay. Um, and uh, but avoiding seizures is one of those secondary brain insults we can avoid. Mm-hmm. So um, I 
I tend to use it when I suspect that the patient's at a high risk of a seizure. And this is by no means evidence-based, but um, a patient with a cortical contusion, um, a patient with a subdural that I've, I've evacuated, certainly a depressed skull fracture. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's highly irritable to the, to the brain when there's, when there's contusion, uh, when there's cortical injury. Um, so then I tend to use it just for fear of, of, of a seizure and, and that secondary brain injury. Um, and... But I tend not to use it, and, and, and most units tend not to use it beyond seven days. Okay. Um, so use it in that in that short that short term short term period. Um, but once again, it, it's really it's it's really operator dependent mm-hmm. or surgeon specific. Okay. I think you need to develop a non-invasive intracranial pressure monitor. Well, there are some. There 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 there, there is there for, certainly for patients with open fontanelles. Okay. Um, there, there, there's you, you, you there, there are some how reliable. I have no personal experience with them. How reliable they are, I don't know. Um, as I said, I have no, I have no, no, no experience with them. And then we are looking at non-invasive ways of once again surrogate markers for cerebral blood flow. Mm. So we're looking at uh, transcranial Dopplers. Mm. Um, you know, we're looking at uh, jugular venous oxygenation. Well, we're looking at near-infrared spectroscopy. So we are looking, once again, at the surrogate markers for cerebral perfusion um, or cerebral blood flow. And um, But yes, the gold standard would be a... a, 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 a and there's good correlation between... Let me not say There's good correlation between transcranial Doppler and intracranial pressure. It's not perfect, but yeah. there is a good correlation. And certainly in those patients that you may be debating, am I going to put in an intracranial pressure monitor um, or not... You you can put a you can do a transcranial Doppler look at flows and see okay maybe this is a patient that I I should be putting a monitor in or maybe this is a patient that I can avoid it in, mm. but yes I mean the gold standard would be a completely non-invasive um, intracranial pressure monitor that would be <laughs> would, would be ideal yeah. yeah we look forward to it in the future <laughs> cool thanks Jason that's been a great walkthrough of uh, pediatric head injuries uh, it's obviously quite a controversial thing but I. Uh, I think obviously we need to stay astute and just be cognizant mm. of what's going on. Do you have any take-home messages you'd like to leave with the guys listening? Um, yeah, I think awareness. Hey, if I can just maybe reiterate that. So, so um, you know, for the guys in the trenches working in the emergency departments, working in the trauma units, working pre-hospital, just awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and just to consult us early. You know, I, I think um, I when when I when I talk to the registrars and the residents and that, and they say, well, when is a CT scan indicated? I always going to say, well, if if a CT scan is indicated, I almost think a neurosurgeon is indicated. Mm-hmm. So, so my take-home message is really just to be aware of it. Your I think your resuscitation principles and thresholds and and targets change slightly, and then um, and then yeah, just. Um, and, and then just consult early, you know. I, I'm, I'm an aggressive surgeon, so I like to put in monitors and Lycox machines and and that. So <laughs> so maybe I'm uh, my my take a message is I joined us by that. But but yeah, um, just just uh, you know, just be aware and treat aggressively. No, I mean I I've said in one of the previous podcasts that you know surgeons like to surge, and I I'm encouraged to hear that yeah. neurosurgeons also like but, to <laughs> surge. <laughs> We wish you all the best for your new endeavours and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.